You're listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. I'm Garrett Ashley Mullet, and I want to talk about everything. If there is a dispute between men, and they come into court, and the judges decide between them, acquitting the innocent and condemning the guilty, then if the guilty man deserves to be beaten, the judge shall cause him to lie down and be beaten in his presence with a number of stripes in proportion to his offense. Forty stripes may be given him, but not more. Lest, if one should go on to beat him with more stripes than these, your brother be degraded in your sight. You shall not muzzle an ox when it is treading out the grain. If brothers dwell together, and one of them dies and has no son, the wife of the dead man shall not be married outside the family to a stranger. Her husband's brother shall go into her and take her as his wife and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. And the first son, whom she bears, shall succeed to the name of his dead brother, that his name may not be blotted out of Israel. And if the man does not wish to take his brother's wife, then his brother's wife shall go up to the gate to the elders and say, My husband's brother refuses to perpetuate his brother's name in Israel. He will not perform the duty of a husband's brother to me. Then the elders of his city shall call him and speak to him, and if he persists, saying, I do not wish to take her, then his brother's wife shall go up to him in the presence of the elders and pull his sandal off his foot and spit in his face. And she shall answer and say, So shall it be done to the man who does not build up his brother's house. And the name of his house shall be called in Israel the house of him who had his sandal pulled off. When men fight with one another, and the wife of the one draws near to rescue her husband from the hand of him who is beating him, and puts out her hand and seizes him by the private parts, then you shall cut off her hand. Your eye shall have no pity. You shall not have in your bag two kinds of weights, a large and a small. You shall not have in your house two kinds of measures, a large and a small. A full and fair weight you shall have. A full and fair measure you shall have, that your days may be long in the land that Yahweh your God is giving you. For all who do such things, all who act dishonestly, are an abomination to Yahweh your God. Remember what Amalek did to you on the way as you came out of Egypt, how he attacked you on the way when you were faint and weary and cut off your tail, those who were lagging behind you, and he did not fear God. Therefore, when Yahweh your God has given you rest from all your enemies around you in the land that Yahweh your God is giving you for an inheritance to possess, you shall blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. You shall not forget. Hey, brother, there's an endless road to rediscover. Hey, sister, know the water's sweet, but blood is thicker. Oh, if the sky comes falling down for you, there's nothing in this world I wouldn't do. Yeah.
Welcome back to the Garrett Ashley Mullet Show. This is, of course, of course, of course, who else? Garrett Ashley Mullet, yours truly, coming to you from Greeley, Colorado for episode 672 of this podcast. That was a reading of Deuteronomy 25. And why don't we just jump right into it? Let's jump right in. (laughs) Some weird laws, some weird ones. There are lots of weird laws in the Old Testament, but there's some especially weird ones in this passage in Deuteronomy 25. And let's start from the top. First of all, you've got this idea of two men going to court and one of them is found guilty. And what he has done is deserving of a beating. He deserves to be beaten, it says. Verse 2, if the guilty man deserves to be beaten, which is to say, there are cases in which men deserve to be beaten. (laughs) Uh, You might think violence is never the answer. Ah, That's not correct, though. Sometimes violence is the answer, actually. Some men, they just deserve to be beaten, but there should be due process, right? There should. We should be fair and give them their day in court. And then if they're found guilty, if in fact they are the scoundrel and they have erred and (laughs) it's not uh, something that can just be cleared up with a fine because they've been especially egregious in their folly and they are, I don't know, unrepentant and just absolutely intolerable and full of themselves and they need to have that driven out of them after a fashion. We have some instructions here in Deuteronomy 25 that might guide us as to how far to go with it and where to stop. So first of all, the man lies down and he's beaten in the presence of the judge. So there are judges, plural, the judges decide between them, but then there is a judge. Why the shift from plural to singular there. The judges decide, but the judge shall cause him to lie down. I don't know. I'm not quite sure. That is a curious thing. But a judge, the judge will cause the man who is guilty to lie down and be beaten in the presence of the judge. One, I suppose that makes sure that the man actually has gotten his punishment. But for two, maybe that tempers the judgments if there's a sobriety that this person is not going to be punished by somebody else, you're not going to leave it to somebody else to do the dirty work. And then you don't have to think about what you're actually doing to a human being. Maybe there's a purpose here for this being done in the presence of the judge as a way of incentivizing mercy, possibly, maybe in any event, this says the number of stripes should be in proportion to the offense. And that's curious because what does that tell us? It tells us that not all offenses deserve the same kind of punishment. And we know that, we should know that, for instance, the most serious, the most egregious bring the death penalty, but not everything is the death penalty. Draco, real figure in antiquity from which we get the term draconian, if laws are especially harsh and severe, we say that they're draconian laws. Well, that comes from Draco. Draco 
<laughs> was once criticized because he had the death penalty down for every offense. And in reply to this, supposedly, as it's been passed down through the centuries of Greco-Roman history to us, he said that most offenses do deserve the death penalty and some deserve worse than death, but you can't give any worse than the death penalty. So there you go. That's not what we find in the law of God. God doesn't say the death penalty is for everything, for every offense. There are a lot of offenses that can be taken care of, cleared up with a fine and just restoring the other person, right? You've damaged them in some way. You need to make it right. You need to restore them. But in some cases, it would seem the only thing for it is a beating, but not all offenses bring the same severity. So here we see in proportion to his offense, meaning that some are going to require more uh, stripes, more reps, more wax with probably a rod or something like that. Some are going to require fewer, but then there's a limit, right? There's an upward limit. It's a maximum sentence of 40 stripes. 40 stripes may be given him, but not more, lest if one should go on to beat him with more stripes than these, your brother be degraded in your sight. Now that word degraded is charged with all kinds of implications because what you could have here is a concern that a beating turns into the death penalty, and that's not what it's supposed to be. There should be a restraint. If what the man did deserves a beating, that doesn't mean that it deserves his life. And justice can get carried away and become an injustice if it's excessively severe, and the one administering the justice is themselves relishing or enjoying the power that they have over the one that they are punishing. So here we have a check. We have a limit on how much the man who is being beat because he was found guilty, how much he can be beaten. But this word degraded is important. It's the man who is described as your brother, which is to say your fellow Israelite. The man himself is not to be degraded. And that would seem to imply not just that he's going to be physically harmed. He might be handicapped, rendered incapable of movement, work, getting around, doing what he needs to do. But there's a sense in which degraded here has to do with his emotional well-being, his social well-being. How is he going to be treated moving forward? You don't want a punishment in the way of a beating to turn into a social death sentence in this case. You don't want it to turn into a death sentence physically, but you also don't want it to turn into, there's no coming back from this socially in the community. But notice here, also, you shall not muzzle an ox when it is treading out the grain. That's thrown in as this just one line statement, which is actually referenced in the New Testament as well with regards to a workman being worthy of his wages. So we know this is not just referring to an actual ox, an actual beast of burden that you would hitch to a plow. No, no, you shall not muzzle an ox when it is treading out the grain has ramifications for how you relate to people, which is to say also, I think that like the parables Jesus teaches with in the gospel accounts, 
This would be a familiar concept to agrarian folks. For instance, those who use oxen to pull heavy loads, to pull wagons, to pull plows, etc., etc. This would be a familiar concept with regards to animals. But then what do you find sometimes? If people get too narrowly focused on their work, whatever it is, sometimes they forget to treat people with as much care and consideration as they treat even a beast of burden. It's intuitive to them that you would make sure the ox is able to eat, is able to survive and sustain itself as it still has work to do. That's intuitive to us. You don't have to be talked into it, especially if the ox belongs to us. We have an investment to protect. But people also, people also need to be able to make a living and they need to be able to function in society. The idea of corrective justice is that this person ultimately would be restored to society. They would be invited back into fellowship and in future they would have better fellowship actually than they had before, not worse. That's the idea of restorative justice. Even when it comes to punitive justice, you want this person who's being punished to, in the end, be restored to the community and to be an upstanding citizen, to be an upstanding member of this town or city or village or county or state or country. But moving on down to verse five, we have laws concerning leveret marriage where the husband of a woman has died. And it says, if brothers dwell together, which is to say these brothers are either all living in the same house or they are living in adjoining houses on the same property. But this says, if brothers dwell together, one of them dies and has no son. The wife of the dead man shall not be married outside the family to a stranger. So she's going to get remarried. She's surely young if she doesn't have any children. She's not going to get married outside of the family to go and graft into some new family. No, she's part of this family. Her husband's brother, it says, shall go into her and take her as his wife and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. What is that? Well, it means getting her pregnant. That's what that means. It's not a easy concept for us to think about or discuss in our context for many reasons, but that doesn't mean that there is something wrong with this. And as a matter of fact, I've heard some say when they talk about this idea, this concept of leveret marriage, they'll say that, well, that was a common custom way back in biblical times. And they won't necessarily go the full way of admitting that this is actually commanded, right? It's commanded in Deuteronomy 25 that this is how it is to be handled. If a young widow has no children, her husband has passed, her brother-in-law, former brother-in-law is to become her husband. And you might say, well, but what if, you know, what if her brother-in-law, what if her deceased husband's uh, brother is married to somebody else. And I say, well, but that's also handled in the biblical text in part because polygamy is never forbidden. Now that's, again, an uncomfortable thing to talk about or even think about in our context, but we should not be presumptuous as we come to the text 
and assume an innate superiority to us and to our sensibilities, we should search the scriptures. We should be Bereans about these things, particularly as it pertains to the character of God. When God says this is what to do in these cases, and he doesn't say thou shalt not with regards to other things, then for us to find fault with what God has commanded or permitted or prohibited is ultimately for us to make a claim against the goodness of God, the wisdom of God, the righteousness of God. This is what God instructs through Moses in Deuteronomy 25. But what's interesting, and this is very, very interesting for all those who say that the Bible is so patriarchal, which of course it is, but for all those who suggest or insist that that is an inherently oppressive thing, as though anything but pure, unadulterated egalitarianism is going to be entirely one-sided. Men can be completely abusive and mistreat women and disrespect women, and women are just these helpless victims and they can't assert themselves in any ways. What we find is actually the prescription. There's a ritual quality to the response. If the woman's former brother-in-law would be new husband, if he refuses her, she's supposed to take it up with the elders of his city. She is supposed to call on the elders of the city. She is supposed to tell them he refuses to perpetuate his brother's name in Israel. Now, again, there's context here, right? In Israel. So take that for what it's worth, but it may not mean that this is only for Israel and we should definitely totally ignore it. She's supposed to say, this man refuses to perpetuate his brother's name in Israel. He will not perform the duty of a husband's brother to me, which is to say it is a duty the elders of the city then call on him. And if he can't be persuaded, which is to say, when it says, if he persists in verse eight, if he can't be persuaded, as in they might give him a talking to and say, hey, listen, you really have a duty here. You have an obligation. This is your responsibility. If he won't listen to them, then she, that is the woman, the widow, shall go up to him in the presence of the elders. So in front of the elders of the city, and pull his sandal off his foot and spit in his face. And you look at that and you think, what in the world? Are you serious? That's in there? She's supposed to spit in his face? And that's what it says, right? Look it up. Verse 9, pull his sandal off his foot and spit in his face, and she shall answer and say, so shall it be done to the man who does not build up his brother's house. And you could be very surprised You could be very surprised if you were coming to this text assuming that it's only women who can ever be treated with this kind of disrespect or dishonor. But then what is being implied here as this is proscribed, this is uh, the instruction, this is the law concerning leveret marriage, (laughs) the man actually has done something that is not respectable, or he has refused to do the respectable thing. And so therefore he has earned a certain level of contempt and it is to be a public showing of contempt. It's not just supposed to be a private thing. 
And you might think, well, how are they going to have any kind of relationship to each other moving forward? And it would seem they're not, right? They're probably not. And what are the man's reasons in this case for refusing to perpetuate his brother's name in Israel? There might be all kinds of reasons. They're probably not the same kinds of reasons that you and I would have. They probably have to do with not wanting to provide for this woman who had been his sister-in-law, not wanting to provide for any children, in particular, a son who would then inherit his brother's possessions, his land, for instance, his house. There's a selfishness to it, actually, is the way that this is being presented. This is a very different picture of the family and extended family relations than what we would be comfortable with. But then, again, what we can't do is come to this text and say, there's something untoward about what God has required. What we should do is consider whether our sensibilities are correct and whether we have the right of it. Because, of course, God is right. We should agree with God. After that section, which, again, admittedly, is very weird, it's very unusual, we see an arguably even weirder one in verse 11 and 12, when men fight with one another and the wife of the one draws near to rescue her husband. So she's coming to save him. She's doing a kind thing, right? She's going to help him out of this jam. Apparently, he's not able to fight his own battles. And so she's going to rescue him, it says, from the hand of him who is beating him. If she puts out her hand and seizes him by the private parts, his private parts, you shall cut off her hand. Your eyes shall have no pity. Whoa. Wow. Brutal, right? Harsh. And also, what? <laughs> like, what in the world is going on here that this needs to have a law? It needs to have its own law? Like, how common of a problem was this? Was this a tendency? Well, we don't know, right? Some women can get very uh, carried away. And right after the whole business with the spitting in a brother-in-law's face because he wouldn't take the widow to be his wife and give her children and provide for her and protect her, right after that, you have this providing something of a check where there is supposed to be a restraint, particularly that a wife would show in the way that she relates to her husband she should show him respect. And this is clearly not respectful behavior that she would intervene in a fight. What's she supposed to do? Well, apparently she's supposed to stay out of it. That's what I'm reading. She should stay out of it. And you might think, wow, cut off her hand? Is it that serious? Well, apparently to God it is. Apparently to God it is. And it could just be that What's being communicated is similar to further up in this chapter in verse 3. Forty stripes may be given him, but not more, lest if one should go on to beat him with more stripes than these, your brother be degraded in your sight. There is something of a humiliation that we understand intuitively is going to be carried with this kind of a hypothetical. She should have taken more care not to humiliate her husband or the other man, for that matter. And... 
there's a degradation of that man, which if she was just careless in allowing for it and putting him in that kind of a position, apparently it takes the removal of a hand to either make it right or to deter, which I think is probably more the case. I think that's more the case, similar to you shall not muzzle the ox as it treads out the grain. I think similar to that, you have here a larger, broader principle being communicated that there's supposed to be a deterrence against this kind of engagement from a wife with regards to her husband's conflicts she should not engage in. And even if you take this very, very literally and only in the precisest possible scope, I know it's difficult, but we have to come away from the text saying God is just, God is right, and we are the ones who need instructed instead of the other way around. We are right. We will instruct God as to what is fair. Verses 13 through 16, we see not having two kinds of weights in a bag, a large and a small. You shall not have in your houses two kinds of measures, a large and a small, a full and fair weight you shall have, a full and fair measure you shall have, that your days may be long in the land that Yahweh your God is giving you. Or what, right? I don't think this is talking at all about the difference between a teaspoon and a measuring cup. What this is talking about really is you have one set of weights for when you're selling and you have one set of weights that look identical, but they're not for when you're buying. So when you sell, you sell high. And what that means is you use the heavier weights to show the person you're selling to how much you're giving them or how much they're receiving, how much they're buying so that you're actually giving them less than you would when you buy from someone else. And when you buy from someone else, you're using a lighter weight so that you're actually receiving more, but it looks like the same set of weights. God says, don't have two sets of weights. And there's even an attachment to how long you're going to live. Will you have a long life? then use full and fair measures. Be fair in your dealings. Don't show partiality. Don't defraud people. Don't act dishonestly. All who act dishonestly, it says, verse 16, are an abomination to Yahweh your God. That's strong, strong language. We see that kind of language used for those who are practicers of homosexuality, those who wear men's clothing, even if they're women, those who wear women's clothing, even if they're men, they're described as an abomination. They themselves, those who do such things, are an abomination to Yahweh. Those who act dishonestly, all who act dishonestly, are an abomination to Yahweh. So God takes it very, very seriously. It's not to say he takes less seriously sexual perversion, transgenderism, But it is to say, God takes those who act dishonestly much more seriously. He is much more opposed to them than we have given him credit for. And that bears some thinking on. Lastly, and then we'll move on to some current events items. 
verse 17 through the end of the chapter, remember what Amalek did to you on the way as you came out of Egypt. Now, this is interesting. This is worth our taking a moment. Remember, right? Remember what Amalek did to you. And then as you go on down, when Yahweh, verse 19, has given you rest from all your enemies around you in the land that Yahweh your God is giving you for an inheritance to possess. You shall blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. You shall not forget. So in other words, there is something of a keeping a record of wrongs here. How does that square with love keeps no record of wrongs? The command to love is on an individual basis. That's what I would say. First off, the command to love and to keep no record of wrongs is on an individual basis, but justice requires that you very carefully detail what wrong has been committed and you gather the evidence and you lay it all out for the judges. Otherwise, there is no justice. If there is never any place for God's people to keep a record of wrongs, then how are the saints going to judge the world? How are we going to judge angels? How much more so pertaining to matters of this life when Paul says that, when he asks, is there no one among you who has the wisdom to judge these matters? That's not an either or with love keeping no record of wrongs. But if we're too quick to forgive, it may not be that we are showing mercy and it may not be that we are being so loving. It could be that we are lax with regards to justice and that we're lawless after a fashion. It can't all be grace, grace, and mercy. Love mercy, by all means. Definitely, let's emphasize the grace of God, but let's not emphasize the grace of God to the point that we are promulgating a falsehood about the justice of God and the justice that he calls us to do. Micah 6, 8, he has shown you, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice. That's the first thing, to do justice and to love mercy, yes, but to walk humbly with your God actually is entirely compatible with doing justice. Now, you might get confused if you say, ah, but wait, Garrett, aren't we told never avenge yourselves? Leave it to the wrath of God. Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord, already is the umbrella for criminal justice. If it's being executed correctly, Romans 13, be subject to the governing authorities. No authority is instituted among men except by God. The governing authority is a minister of God to do what? Why? To judge. And not just to judge in the sense of calling spades spades, but to judge with right judgment to reward those who do good. That means you have to judge what is good. To punish those who do evil. That means you have to judge what is evil. To punish is to deliver something of the vengeance that belongs to the Lord. But there has to be due process there. Vengeance is God's because principally when we sin, we sin against God. Secondarily, we might sin against some other person, but first and foremost, we're sinning against God because all things and all men belong to him rightly. Whether we agree with that, whether we keep that in mind, whether we act like it, whether we believe that, doesn't matter. We all belong to God. And that's why when we sin, 
it's first and foremost a sin against him, even when it's a sin against another person, because that other person belonged to God. And if it doesn't affect other people, well, it's still a sin because we belong to God. If God said to not to, and we did it anyways, that's very serious. But here, Amalek, right? Amalek as a people are going to be blotted out. Even the memory of them is going to be blotted out from under heaven. And yet God says to Israel, you shall not forget. And so this is a way of describing every trace of this people except for what's in the word being destroyed. This people, Amalek, the Amalekites, they're going to be destroyed. All of their material effects, all the evidence that they ever even existed is going to be burned up, smashed, buried, except the evidence found in God's word. And by that, Israel will continue to remember. It's a command. Remember what Amalek did to you. And so we have to understand there is something different and distinctive about the way that a nation, a people should relate compared with the way that an individual should relate where it pertains to keeping a record of wrongs. Because here we clearly have the keeping of a record of wrongs, but God said to, and so therefore it is good and it it is right. Let's go back to this topic of leveret marriage though. Briefly, before we get into some current events items, according to Wikipedia, leveret marriage is a type of marriage in which the brother of a deceased man is obliged to marry his brother's widow. Leveret marriage has been practiced by societies with a strong clan structure in which exogamous marriage, i.e. marriage outside the clan, is forbidden. The term leveret is derived from the Latin levir, meaning husband's brother. Leveret marriage can, at its most positive, serve as protection for the widow and her children, ensuring that they have a male provider and protector. Leveret marriage can be a positive in a society where women must rely on men to provide for them, especially in societies where women are under the authority of, dependent on, in servitude to or regarded as possessions of their husbands or to ensure the survival of the clan. The practice of leveret marriage is strongly associated with patriarchal societies. The practice was extremely important in ancient times, e.g. ancient Near East, and remains so today in parts of the world. Having children enables the inheritance of land which offers security and status. A leveret marriage might only occur if a man died childless in order to continue his family line. The anthropologist Ruth Mace also found that the practice of widow inheritance by younger brothers, common in many parts of Africa, serves to reduce population growth as these men will be forced to marry older and hence less fertile women. In the Hebrew Bible, a form of leveret marriage called yibum is mentioned in Deuteronomy 25, 5-10 under which the brother of a man who dies without children is permitted and encouraged to marry the widow. Either of the parties may refuse to go through with the marriage, but both must go through a ceremony known as haliza, involving a symbolic act of renunciation of a yabum marriage. Sexual relations with one's brother's wife are otherwise forbidden by Leviticus 18 and Leviticus 20. Jewish custom has seen a gradual decline of yabum in favor of halizah, to the point where in most contemporary Jewish communities and in Israel, by mandate of the chief rabbinate, yibum is prohibited. 
Now, this is very curious, right? This is very, very curious that Yabum is prohibited by this chief rabbinate. That's very, very curious. How do we feel about that? How should we feel about it? God said this is what to do, and the rabbis are saying, yeah, don't do that. What's up with that? Is that good? Is that good? It seems not so good to me. Uh, Also, I don't recall, I just read it, I don't recall this claim either of the parties may refuse to go through with the marriage. I suppose that may be the case, but then as with the chief rabbinate prohibiting Yaboom, you know, you could just be making that up, right? You could just be doing what the Pharisees did that got them into so much conflict with Jesus. Could be. In fact, I think so. In the next paragraph, the last one under the heading Judaism in this Wikipedia article, we read, this started already in time of Mishnah, quote, the opinion of Abba Shal, who said the mitzvah of Halitza takes precedence over the mitzvah of Leverit marriage. Now that they do not have intent for the sake of fulfilling the mitzvah, the sages say the mitzvah of performing halitza takes precedence over the mitzvah of consummating the leveret marriage. And what you may wonder is mitzvah. Mitzvah is the Hebrew word referring to a commandment of God, which is a religious duty. It's something of a good deed, but it's a good deed that God commands. So in other words, the mitzvah of halitza, taking precedence over the mitzvah of leveret marriage, is to say they have taken it upon themselves to declare not just this is what it is, but because this is what it is, therefore we're going to prohibit this other option, which is in the biblical text. And that's a very curious thing. And we see its equivalent in Christianity as well. Lest we get so high-minded with regards to those who follow Judaism, we're doing the same thing as it seems to me with regards to the practice of polygamy, which is all throughout the Old Testament. But you'll have people who forget the history. They don't know the history. They never knew it, so they couldn't forget it. But then some know it and they gloss over it. They brush it aside. They make no mention of it. They don't teach others that history, the history of how it came to be that in the West, polygamy was made illegal and taboo. And even to talk about it is taboo. Instead of admitting that God gave permission and gave requirements and regulated it, what we are told instead is it is prohibited. And not just prohibited, but some even say it is a sin. And when they say that, they are presuming to speak for God. And that is dangerous. We don't find it in the word of God unless you are claiming to be a prophet, but in that case, take care, (laughs) take care, particularly when a lot of the folks who would claim such a thing also denounce those who make such claims. It's a mess, right? It is a mess. Lots of other cultures I could talk about. They have this practice of leveret marriage in the Wikipedia article. Check it out if you're curious, if you want to know more, if you're interested in knowing. But Before we run out of time, I want to touch on a few other pieces of news. First up, let's talk about a piece by Harris Rigby over at Not The Bee. 
Joe Biden appointed a major Democrat donor to a top government position who also just happened to buy some of Hunter Biden's quote-unquote artwork. It sure is nice to take a break from all the treasonous, heinous, and despicable international bribery scandals of the Biden White House to focus on this more mundane form of corruption. Remember when Hunter started selling his artwork a couple of years back and absolutely everyone said, oh, that's definitely corruption and money laundering. Remember that? There was a not-to-be post, by the way, June 15th, 2021, highlighting that he was selling his artwork for up to half a million dollars. Harris Rigby continues, yeah, well, anyway, one of the ladies who just so happened to buy some of Hunter's artwork now by pure coincidence, I'm sure, is sitting on a prestigious government-appointed commission thanks to the big guy. Allegedly, the big guy is Joe Biden. Just a good old-fashioned corrupt quid pro quo. You buy some of Hunter's crappy art and we'll give you this prestigious position. Here's a quote from the Business Insider article. The White House said that his team had a process for carefully vetting buyers and that their identities were only known to the gallery and not to Hunter Biden himself. The messaging seemed to suggest that his art patrons came from a rarefied universe of collectors who had nothing to do with the hurly-burly of politics. Neither of those things has turned out to be the case. Hunter Biden did, in fact, learn the identity of two buyers, according to three people directly familiar with his own account of his art career, and one of those buyers is indeed someone who got a favor from the Biden White House. Harris Rigby continues, wait, are you telling me, hold on, do you mean to tell me the president with a cokehead son who happened to start painting and then selling his paintings for hundreds of thousands of dollars? You're telling me there's something suspicious going on here? You mean to tell me Joe Biden is corrupt? Is that what you're telling me? The buyer is a Los Angeles woman named Elizabeth Hirsch Naftali, Hirsch Naftali also happens to be a major Democrat donor, even hosting an event with Vice President Kamala Harris this year. As it happens, coincidentally, of course, a year ago, Biden appointed Hirsch Naftali to the Commission for the Preservation of America's Heritage Abroad, the perfect fit for a lover of fine art. Again, quoting Business Insider, Hunter Biden is a private citizen who is entitled to have his own career as an artist. Ian Sams, a White House Spokesperson said, quote, we are not involved in his art sales and any buyers of his art are not disclosed to the White House, end quote. Also, here's an amazing little nugget. This doesn't appear to be the first time Hunter Biden has sold a spot on this very board, according to emails on Hunter Biden's laptop from hell. He sold the position to someone else during the Obama years, quote, in the past Hunter Biden has privately suggested that he could arrange to have friends seated on the commission. Eric Schwerin, Hunter Biden's longtime business associate, was appointed to the same post by President Barack Obama in 2015. An email apparently from Hunter Biden's abandoned laptop written that year suggests that he had sway over Schwerin's appointment. Quote, Eric asked me for one of these the day after the election in 2008. End quote. He wrote to a cousin who had written inquiring about the possibility of a similar appointment for her mother. Harris Rigby concludes, my goodness, this is so nakedly corrupt. Are there still people out there who think the Bidens are law-abiding citizens who should be within 100 miles of the Oval Office? And the simple answer is yes. And the reason for it is because, unfortunately, going back to Deuteronomy 25, we are very apathetic about unequal weights and measures. 
Remember verses 13 through 16? You shall not have in your bag two kinds of weights, a large and a small. For all who do such things, all who act dishonestly, are an abomination to Yahweh your God. We don't believe that. We don't agree with that. We don't believe it. And the sadistic way that this has been set up when we try and talk about it with each other is if you are a player for blue team and I'm a player for red team as you see it, and I point out that a player on the blue team has been using unequal weights and measures and that you're giving them a pass as they behave in a nakedly corrupt way. If I point that out, you say, ah, but you have players on the red team that do it too. And it doesn't matter whether I would agree with that, whether it's true. It doesn't matter whether I'm good with it. It doesn't matter if I have anything at all whatsoever to do with any such thing, because now it's just duck season, rabbit season, duck season, rabbit season, back and forth. And the two quoke is a red herring. And what's lost in the shuffle is any energy, any will for us to come together and to hold all of the above accountable. If somebody's running as a Republican and they are using unequal weights and measures, they should be removed. If they're running for office, they should be forced to drop out of the race. If they're in office, they should be removed from office. They should be impeached and replaced. If they're overseeing elections, they should not be overseeing the elections. If they are administering justice, they should be themselves prosecuted. They certainly should not be the ones judging You do not want a country ruled by people who have two sets of weights in the bag, one for buying, the other one for selling. And oh, by the way, in case it's not obvious, selling modern art in general is a brilliant way to launder money. Have you ever looked at a piece of so-called modern art and just thought to yourself, man, that is the ugliest, most grotesque (laughs) skill vacuum I have ever seen. That sucks. How much did that sell for? How, right? How? Well, a very probable answer is the how was to launder money for the art to make the rounds and for us to say, oh yeah, he just really loves this piece of art. That gives a kind of excuse and a veneer of respectability and decency to the buying and the selling. But particularly when you see people being appointed to positions within the government after having donated to campaigns, after having bought art from the president's son, former vice president's son, particularly when you see that kind of thing going on and it's happening out in the open. Ooh, man. Oh, man. It's a pity we don't hate unequal weights and measures more. It's a pity we have come to a place of shrugging about it and indifference because it only gets worse and worse. The more that is accepted, tolerated, affirmed, the worse the injustices will get, the more oppressive the ruling class will get, the more egregious, the more blatant, the less concerned with hiding it they will be, the less anything happens when these things come out into the open. What we tolerate is what we will get more of. What is rewarded is what we will suffer more from. For our next story, lest you think I would only talk about 
indiscretions on the blue team. Ryan Saavedra over at the Daily Wire published a piece just yesterday. McConnell freezes up during press conference. Trolls Biden after returning. (laughs) I'll play for you cut one here of the odd moment, as Raquel Martin puts it in her tweet, the embedded tweet in the Ryan Zavedra piece at the Daily Wire is what I will play for you. Here it is. Cut one. Take a listen. Okay, did you catch that? <laughs> did you catch the crickets and chirping and the uncomfortable shuffling of feet? An aide for McConnell said that the senator felt lightheaded and stepped away for a moment. He came back to handle Q&A, which, as everyone observed, was sharp, end quote. Barrasso later told reporters that he was, quote, concerned when he fell and hit his head a number of months ago and was hospitalized. Quote, I think he's made a remarkable recovery. He's doing a great job leading our conference, and he was able to answer every question that the press asked him today. And you may note he answered more questions than he normally did. End quote. McConnell later returned to the press conference, said he was fine, and took a shot at President Joe Biden over the president falling on the stage earlier this year at an Air Force commencement ceremony in Colorado Springs. Quote, the president called to check on me, McConnell said. Quote, I told him I got sandbagged. Gotta watch those sandbags. <laughs> End quote. So the trouble here is we have people at the highest levels of our government who are, in my view, if you ask me, rather selfishly being propped up. And when I say selfishly, I don't just mean they're being selfish. I mean the people who handle them, who run their staffs, who run the parties, don't want to let them retire, it seems. They themselves maybe don't want to retire, but the people who prop them up are not keen on them retiring. And I think that's unfortunate. I think that's selfish. I think that does a disservice to our country. They are not doing as good of a job as others could. In a country of between 300 and 400 million people, it seems to me as though we should have other people who are sharp and it should not be a requirement that you have been in Washington, D.C. for more of your life than you have been just a citizen of the country. That should not be a requirement that you would be in Washington, D.C. for decades and decades, for most of your life, in order to be able to be a senator, to be the president, to be a judge. In fact, Washington, D.C., seems like the place to go for people who have two sets of weights and measures in their bag. And that makes me and a lot of others very distrustful 
towards the people who have been there the longest, who even when they're well past their prime, are still kept in place at seemingly all costs. I'm very distrustful of the reasons. And I think most of us are very distrustful, whether it's a Republican, whether it's a Democrat, whether it's red team, whether it's blue team. These people do not seem as though they are really actually fit to be serving at these highest levels. And yet you and I are supposed to not pay attention to that and not comment on it and not call it out. No, 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 no. I'm not okay with it. Unless it seem I'm showing partiality. I'll say, I think term limits would be good to clean up both of the two leading political parties, the Republican Party and the Democrat Party. And I think actually to term limits would go a long ways to opening up opportunities for other political parties to function and operate and get votes. And it would probably be good for the United States if we did not have just these two options realistically. Also, oh, by the way, as I was telling somebody I work with just yesterday, I think political parties are a pretty good idea for some things, but I think that the ballot should not include an R or a D or in parentheses what somebody's political party is when they're running for office. I think that would go a long ways to getting people to actually research who it is that they're voting for, especially in local elections, county level, state level elections. It would be wise for us to have to actually look into the record and the positions and the platform and the character, more importantly, of the men who run for office instead of just seeing Republican, 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 Democrat, 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 and voting the party ticket. If political parties have their place, and Edmund Burke would argue that, they have a stabilizing influence. Stabilizing should be for the good things. You want to stabilize the good things about a country. You don't want to stabilize what is corrupt. Don't stabilize corruption. Please, 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 please. And yet I think that's what we've been doing. I think that's part of why we shrug and it is so very difficult to get anything done about corruption when we find it. We have stabilized corruption in part, in large, large part by our acquiescence, by our silence, by our rationalization, and yes, by our cowardice. We've been more afraid of what man might do to us than lovers of God, lovers of what is true, lovers of what is good. And it will have consequences. It already is having consequences. We see them, we feel them every day. For example, for instance, Alex Nitzberg over at The Blaze has a report from July 19th. This one's a little over a week old. Not you again, Elon Musk responds as Elizabeth Warren presses SEC to investigate Tesla. Here's a tweet from Elizabeth Warren. And I quote, since Elon Musk took over Twitter, I'm concerned at Tesla's board has failed to manage conflicts of interest from his role as CEO of Tesla and Twitter. Tesla's board has a legal obligation to serve its shareholders. I'm urging at SecGov to investigate. And what's fun is down below, readers added context they thought people might want. 
To quote that, Elon Musk served as Twitter's CEO from the acquisition on 10-27-22 until 6-5-23 when Linda Yaccarino took over as CEO. Musk now serves as Twitter's CTO. Tesla's stock increased 171% between January 3rd, 2023 and July 18th, 2023. That is interesting context. So all of that is to say, when Elizabeth Warren is saying Tesla's board has a legal obligation to serve its shareholders, when she's urging the SEC to investigate, but Tesla's stock has increased 171% just this year, uh, investigate what, right? Investigate how much money? Tesla is making for shareholders? Like, what are you wanting to have investigated? Oh, that's right. You want someone who is allowing people, not all people, but more people you disagree with to speak. You want that person who's allowing those people to speak, wants those people to be able to have a public square, as he says. You want him to be investigated for allowing people you disagree with to speak in public, to engage in the public discourse. Yeah, I'm pretty sure that's not against the law. And what you're doing right now is you're using unequal weights and measures. This is naked corruption. Once again, this is you going after political opposition and trying to make an example of Elon Musk, trying to spook the public, trying to spook shareholders who, if they're not paying attention, maybe won't invest in Tesla. And this is happening on many fronts, by the way, that Tesla is being written about in ugly ways. Doom and gloom, doom and gloom, doom and gloom about Tesla, particularly from corporate media that also doesn't like, just like Elizabeth Warren doesn't like, they don't like Elon Musk wanting Twitter to be a place where conservatives and Christians are free to speak are free to cross-examine, are free to criticize, are free to share good reporting or at least plausible reporting and journalism on Democrats, on globalists, on progressives, on the radical left. It is funny though, Elon Musk, his tweet in reply to Elizabeth Warren is just three words long, not you again. Which is to say there's a kind of weariness and it is funny, right? It is funny. A little further down, we see Farzad Misbahi has a tweet that is embedded. Thanks, Alex Nitzberg. Thanks, The Blaze. And I quote, Elizabeth Warren is the last person I would ever want anywhere close to Tesla. Elon Musk replied, the United States has definitely been harmed by having her as a senator. Lol. That was December 19th, 2022. After a tweet from Unusual Wales, Elizabeth Warren has written a letter to Tesla's board asking whether investors have been harmed by the billionaire tech mogul's time running the social network per New York Times. Because, of course, she wants that to be the case. She wants it to have been the case that 
Tesla's board would say, yes, shareholders have been harmed. Investors have been harmed. Why does Elizabeth Warren want that to be the case? Because she wants an excuse. She's looking for an excuse. Any excuse will do, even if it has to be fabricated, even if it has to be wish-casted into existence, even if regulators have to go on fishing expeditions, journalists have to go on fishing expeditions to find something, find anything to get him back to destroy Elon Musk, to destroy Twitter being a place for free speech on the internet. And again, that is corrupt. That is wicked. That is a wicked thing. But let's switch gears. Let's talk about something not precisely political for a moment. Jesse James has a piece up over at Not To Be about an Arkansas doctor who has been accused of holding over two dozen patients against their will in his psych ward. NBC News has some reporting on this in which they tweeted out July 24th, one of the most prominent psychiatrists in Arkansas is under investigation by state and federal authorities who are probing allegations ranging from Medicaid fraud to false imprisonment. The name of the doctor here is Dr. Brian Hyatt. Jesse James writes, imprisoning your patients is generally frowned upon in the medical community, but I guess maybe nobody told this guy. Here's a quote from the NBC News reporting. Dr. Brian Hyatt is now under investigation by Arkansas state and federal authorities who are probing allegations ranging from Medicaid fraud to false imprisonment. At least 26 former patients have sued Hyatt, alleging that they were held against their will in his unit for days and sometimes weeks. And Arkansas Attorney General Tim Griffin's office has accused Hyatt of running an insurance scam, claiming to treat patients he rarely saw and then billing Medicaid at, quote, the highest severity code on every patient, end quote, according to a search warrant affidavit, end quote. Northwest Medical Center in Springdale fired Hyatt last year. He has also been the subject of a drug enforcement agency search. He has denied the allegations made against him, of course. It's worth noting that though 26 former patients are suing the doctor, the true number of people allegedly held improperly could run nearly 10 times as high Northwest Medical Center allegedly, quote, could not provide sufficient documentation that justified the hospitalization of 246 patients who were held in Hyatt's unit, end quote, according to an investigation by the state attorney general. Hyatt was allegedly, quote, getting paid $1,367 per day in part through Medicare and Medicaid claims His filings indicated he was meeting face-to-face with patients during these visits from January 2019 to June 2022. Medicaid, quote, paid out more than $800,000 to Hyatt's facility, end quote. Hyatt has been accused of billing Medicaid at, quote, the highest severity code on every patient, end quote, which would guarantee maximum payout for each visit. A former staffer, on the other hand, last year claimed the doctor was only on the floor a few minutes of each day with no contact with patients. So that is the write-up from Jesse James. Good work, Jesse James. Good work, not to be. Part of why I bring this to your attention is because if we go back once more to Deuteronomy chapter 25, we see this principle being put forward again and again in law after law that you don't want your brother to be degraded We saw it in 
previous chapters, say for instance, when a man has been given a pledge, loaning something to his neighbor, he's not to go into his neighbor's house to get the pledge. Let the man who's being loaned to, let the borrower go in and get the pledge and bring it out. You wait outside. Why is that important? Because it has to do with respect. It has to do with honor and dignity of your neighbor. Yes, they may be in a bad way, but that doesn't mean that you go trampling on them. Here in Deuteronomy 25, we see a court case where a man is condemned if he's guilty. If the guilty man deserves to be beaten, he will lie down in the presence of the judge and be beaten with a number of stripes in proportion to his offense, but there's a limit. 40 stripes is the limit. Why is there a limit? Because sometimes those who are in positions of power lord it over those they have power over. And just because somebody has something wrong with them, that doesn't mean that the person who's supposed to be doing something about it is always in the right. They might exploit the vulnerability of the person who is in their power. And that's what we see in the case of this allegation, these allegations, this investigation regarding the doctor in Arkansas. I mean, imagine you go to a doc and you are basically being portrayed very quickly, whether or not it's accurate, you're being portrayed as somebody who needs to be institutionalized, locked away for days or weeks. That's traumatic. Little wonder that only 26 are suing, but 246 were hospitalized and there's no documentation that is sufficient to justify why they were hospitalized and why Medicaid was billed at the highest level of severity. What it looks like is people were being talked into, being institutionalized, made to think that they were crazy so that this doctor could farm them with Medicaid and make quite a lot of money. He's in a position of power. He's a prominent psychiatrist, and it would appear he made $800,000 from January 2019 to June 2022. He made nearly a million dollars, over three quarters of a million dollars, farming people who came in to see him trying to get help by cranking it to 11. Now, just imagine, if we go back to Deuteronomy 25, imagine a scenario in which a judge is consistently, in case after case after case, every case that comes to him, giving 40 lashes. That's the limit, 40 lashes for everything, for anything, any guilty conviction, 40 lashes. At a certain point, don't you say, well, wait a second, is it possible that you're finding some people guilty who are not guilty because you enjoy seeing people get 40 lashes? Is it also possible that maybe you're taking relatively minor offenses that you're supposed to be judging and punishing with less severity and you're cranking up their severity because you enjoy inflicting harm on other people? Is that possible? Maybe you shouldn't be a judge if that's what you're doing. And as a matter of fact, maybe if you are abusing people, you yourself at a certain point should be scrutinized. Are you well? But then the problem here is because these are amorphous, fuzzy terms in our materialistic social imaginary, we don't have a category for some people just being sinners or being sinned against. We don't have a category for restoration. 
when there is sin involved. And so everything is biochemical. And so therefore also, because it's in flux and you're told to trust the people in the white lab coats, family, friends, they might say, oh man, that seems like that can't possibly be. But what are they told, right? If the doctor, if the man in the white lab coat, living very well in the community, I'm sure, making $800,000, there's a lot you can do with $800,000. If the man in the white lab coat with the shiny new car and the big, beautiful house in the nicest part of town says, this person is very deeply unwell and we need to admit him immediately and medicate him and hold him for weeks, even though the doctor is not even actually going to go and see this person or treat them. Boy, howdy, that sounds an awful lot like kidnapping. That sounds an awful lot like man-stealing. That sounds like torture. The person who's supposed to be helping people to get better, that's the advertisement, is actually probably making these people, if they were unwell before, even more unwell. If they're being medicated when they didn't need medication and they're being held against their will in a psych ward when they actually weren't crazy, but that's what they've been told, hey, I think you have an issue. You should go see a psychiatrist and get some meds. If they weren't unwell before, if they weren't mentally ill before, they probably are going to have some issues with mental health moving forward. Probably. And of course, due process should be undertaken. Allegations are not the same thing as proof that somebody has committed a crime. But then if everything is supposed to be established in the way of charges on the evidence of two or three witnesses, 26 former patients, that's approaching 10 times the minimum. If this guy sinned against between 20 and 30 people, at least, that's plenty. Plenty enough to look into investigate, deal with. Now, in conclusion, wrapping up this episode, you might think these are odd things to put in series, whether we're talking Deuteronomy 25 or whether we're talking these current events items. I don't think they are. I don't think they're so odd, in part because if you go back to the Leverett marriage topic, we see in Scripture, in the law, Verses 5 through 10, very clear instructions for what to do if a man dies and does not leave his widow with any children. We see very clear instructions, and then we look over at Wikipedia, and we see that the chief rabbinate has said, yeah, we're only going to keep, follow half of that. We'll, We'll follow the half where the brother who would take this woman to be his wife has his shoe taken off, and he gets some spit in his face. We'll follow that part, but the other part, we're going to prohibit it. We're not even going to just say it's fallen out of popularity. We're going to prohibit it. What is that? And is it so different? Is it so different from Hunter Biden selling his so-called artwork for hundreds of thousands of dollars in exchange for, it would seem, that's what a quid pro quo means, this for that, in exchange for the people who bought the artwork getting things from Joe Biden. It appears as though the artwork is not what's being sold. An appointment 
to a government position is what's being sold. You give a certain amount of money here and next thing you know, you're going to be in power. You're going to have official governmental authority. You bought the seat. You bought that office. You bought that title. You bought that authority, essentially. Well, what is that, right? What is that? What is this business with the SEC being sicked on Elon Musk and Twitter? Because he bought Twitter. Elon Musk needs to be unpersoned. He needs show trials. He needs harassment. He needs to be screamed at. He needs re-educated. Find something, right? Find some way in which we can get him on a technicality in the regs. And what's so ironic about it is a lot of us have learned to shrug about that. But if we come to a passage on, say, for instance, lever at marriage, we are just indignant. Oh, man, that's so, oh, that's so, ugh. What's up with that, right? What's up with that? What's up with the indifference when it comes to the dirtiness and the ugliness of people well into their 80s who have been in Washington, D.C. for decades and decades who are clearly corrupt. They're clearly not competent to do the job, but then what is the job, right? What we think the job is versus what they and the political party and the bureaucracy thinks is their job. Two very different things, clearly. We shrug about that even though that is unequal weights and measures. That, God says, is an abomination. God doesn't say that a wife marrying her deceased husband's brother, getting children with him. We don't look at that and shrug about it. We look at that and we say that's an abomination. But casual corruption, lying, deceit, dishonesty, fraud, bribery, extortion, intimidation, blackmail, all of those kinds of things being a matter, of course, in our corporations, in our public square, in our government, that we say that's no big deal, even though all of that is an abomination to God and the lever at marriage is an abomination to us, but God is the one who said to do it. He's, he's the one who said this is the way to do it. And of course, yes, there are options, but it's untoward. It is concerning, even when it comes to how many American Christians would look at the Pharisees, for instance, in the New Testament. And we would say, ooh, that's so gross that they would add to the law and then they would invalidate the commands of God by the traditions of men. And look here in the Leverett marriage entry at Wikipedia, they're still doing it, but we'll probably give them a pass because it's like, yeah, I don't blame you, right? I don't blame you. I also think that's weird. But what's the common denominator? The common denominator is unequal weights and measures. We have one set of weights and measures for what we're buying, and we have another set for what we would sell. We have one set of weights and measures for what God says. We have another set of weights and measures for what we say or what seems profitable to us. Either way, as long as we get what we want, that's what we will rationalize in far too many cases. And actually, you might say, well, that's very discouraging, Garrett. No, no, listen. If it starts there, if it starts with the individual person like you and me, in our personal dealings, using unequal weights and measures and then shrugging when other people do as well, or shrugging when other people do and then we start to as well, then wouldn't a solution, the beginning of a solution to these problems that we are concerned about that affect us and our 
families, our friends, our communities, it, wouldn't the start of dealing with these problems actually also be for us to start using equal weights and measures, acting honestly instead of dishonestly? Yes. And that's the good news, right? The good news is in your business practices, in your dealings, in your speech, in your conduct, in your way of treating people, if you make a mistake, own it. If you need something done, get out there and try to earn it. If you accomplish something, sell it for what it's worth. If you're buying something, buy it for what it's worth. In that way, you can have a good conscience. You can have peace of mind. You might be able to influence others by your own example, but more importantly, God will be pleased with that. If it's done out of your love for God, a desire to please him, to do what pleases him, to do what is in accordance with his character, that's worth far more than whatever you would get from using unequal weights and measures. And that's the way we've got to think. We've got to think opportunity cost. If I'm a cheat, if I'm a liar, if I'm a fraudster, if I'm a con man, I may get a benefit for a time, but at what cost? And what other better benefit am I missing out on? In my relationship with God, what's that worth? Hmm? What would that profit me? To have God who loves my soul preserve me, prosper me, protect me, guide me, give me wisdom. Do the math. I think you will find what it profits a man to lose the whole world but preserve his soul is quite, quite enough. But that's all the time I've got for this episode. I have to run. I need to get to work. As always, thank you for listening. Until next time, God bless. You've been listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. For more content like what you just heard, subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. Also check out thegarrettashleymulletshow.com to subscribe to email alerts when new episodes are published. As always, you can reach me with any comments, questions, complaints, objections, or insights at garrettashleymullet at protonmail.com. Thank you.